Welcome, everyone, to this special edition of the Stem Cell Podcast, an exciting off-schedule episode released in addition to our regular episodes this month. You may remember that earlier this year, Stem Cell put out a call for scientists to peer-review their company as scientists helping scientists. This is an episode that Dalen and I recorded in April when the peer reviewers had just completed their review of Stem Cell. We interviewed the reviewers, asked them all about their experiences at Stem Cell and their conclusions, and we got to dig into their research interests and expertise. It was a really fun, informative conversation that digs into topics from West Nile virus to extracellular vesicles to dogs diagnosing prostate cancer and more. And of course, the reviewers also reveal the final verdict of whether stem cell actually are scientists helping scientists. You'll have to listen to find out. You can learn more about Stem Cell's peer review and watch a short documentary film about the project by visiting www.stemcell.com slash peer dash review. That's stemcell.com slash peer review. We hope you enjoy the episode. So back in January, Stem Cell Technologies put out a call for applicants, asking for scientists to come to Vancouver to peer review stem cell as scientists helping scientists. This was to review whether stem cell is actually succeeding at being scientists helping scientists. They received over 300 applications and through a fairly intensive review process based on a combination of the applicant's scientific expertise and their expressed rationale for wanting to participate in this initiative, they decided on three scientist reviewers. The reviewer's job was to take a good look at everything stem cell does and determine whether stem cell really are scientists helping scientists and whether stem cell is achieving its goal of working alongside scientists to advance science. As part of their experience at stem cell, we're bringing the reviewers onto this podcast to give them a chance to showcase their own expertise, to talk about what they work on, and to share their thoughts on the experience at Stem Cell. So, who are these lucky peer review scientists? Kiki, we have an esteemed international group of scientists <laughs> with us today uh, from the U.S. first, uh, University of Washington in Seattle, senior fellow, uh, Amy Stone, PhD. Amy has studied infectious disease for her graduate and postdoctoral training, focusing on the innate host defenses to RNA viruses. She currently uses systems biology to learn more about how humans defend against these viruses, hoping to harness those defenses for novel therapeutics. Amy also has a passion for teaching and outreach, leading the education corps at her center in the University of Washington School of Medicine 
Amy wanted to be a part of this peer review committee as a means to address the reproducibility crisis plaguing bioscience. Which is a really huge issue. So I'm looking forward to hearing from her. Additionally, we have from the Atlantic Cancer Research Institute in Canada, postdoctoral fellow Craig Ayer. Craig completed his doctoral work on B-cell extracellular vesicles and is now a postdoctoral fellow at the Atlantic Center Research Institute in Moncton, New Brunswick. He works as a team member investigating the use of extracellular vesicles for their diagnostic and therapeutic potential in different cancers. And Craig is interested in bridging the gap between the perceptions surrounding academic versus industry-led science through this peer review experience. And last but not least, from the UK, Fiona Frame, a postdoctoral research associate at the University of York. Fiona Frame's research uses primary prostate epithelial cells derived from patient prostate cancer tissue. She uses these cells as a clinically relevant model of current disease to study therapy resistance. She's passionate about the need for collaborative working between clinicians, patients, and scientists in order to progress cancer research. During our conversation with Fiona, she shared that grants used to fund prostate cancer research are frequently based on donations from people touched by the disease. When when reagents don't work, they affect more than just the experiments. And a simple product replacement is not enough. Fiona wanted to learn about the support stem cells able to provide to the scientific community. That's um, three international researchers, Kiki, our peer reviewers. Let's talk to these guys. Absolutely. So just to get started, we're going to let each of these researchers talk for a little bit in depth about what they do. And so or to just jump off here, let's start with our the first person we inter- introduced, Dr. Stone. Amy, can you tell us a bit about your research and what you're working on and you know, give us more details than that brief introduction that, that Dalen gave? Thank you, Kiki, and thank you for the introduction, Dalen. So what I am working on primarily is looking at how humans and mice respond to West Nile virus. West Nile virus is an RNA virus that is spreading through most of the world being carried by mosquitoes. In most cases, when a person is infected with West Nile, they don't even know they're infected. 80% of infected people have no symptoms. However, that remaining 20% that do have symptoms about half of them go on to an extremely dangerous neuroinvasive disease, which can lead to long-term brain damage and death. We don't really know why some people are able to defend from the virus and never even know they had it versus those who go on to have this more extreme form of the disease. My research is focused on what happens at that initial stage of infection when you first are bit by the mosquito and the virus enters your skin what happens to the innate immune cells that are your first line of defense in the skin and how does infection with the virus lead to changes in those cells into defenses versus susceptibility? So Amy, I have to ask, I'm sorry, but when we talk about virus and mosquito on the show, we're always talking about one thing you can guess, Zika, right? Zika, Zika. Nobody cares about anything but Zika these days and (laughs) maybe justifiably so. It's a scourge, although people have kind of cooled off on it. It's not like the mosquitoes went away. I don't know where all the papers went. But what I want to ask is, as a young scientist, 
in research, you've committed your whole career to this thing, is what do you do in a situation like this when you have important research questions for a disease that affects millions of people, but suddenly, I guess, the pop community has lost interest? Is it like a challenge in terms of the funding sources drying up? What does it mean to your research career? Are you jealous of the Zika people? <laughs> <laughs> so I am not jealous of the Zika people. And the reason why is that Zika is actually a family member with West Nile. So a lot of the lessons that we've learned from West Nile and that I've been able to personally contribute to are applicable to Zika. So when these new viruses come along, it allows those of us who have already been working in the field and working within those virus families to take a small step to make a big impact. Mm. How did... How did you get into working with these RNA viruses? What got you interested? I mean, it's a huge disease. Disease is a huge area and wanting to know how to fix this stuff. But how did you personally get interested in this? I've always been fascinated by infectious diseases and how those affect populations from things like when I was first learning about the Black Death and how that affected populations throughout Europe in the Middle Ages. As I went on to grad school, I became very interested in viruses themselves because viruses break all the rules. You go through undergraduate learning about biology and it's DNA goes to RNA goes to protein and that's how it works. Except when a virus comes along and the virus says, no, I don't want to do it that way. I'm going to do something completely different. And I find that fascinating. And being able to exploit the viruses and how they break the rules of bi biology leads to these novel discoveries and hopefully ways to help patients across the board, regardless of the type of disease that they have, whether it's infectious or not. You raise an interesting question about a virus, not just as a disease. I think it's important because, you know, a lot of the great discoveries and the tools that we use. I mean, uh, you guys are there to review a, a, a tools company, essentially, and you must have personal insight into how much of the insight from viral machinery has been exploited. Can you talk about that a little bit, about how in our everyday life as molecular biologists, we employ a lot of viral elements? Absolutely. One of the biggest ways that we employ viruses as tools is through the lentivirus system. So if you're not familiar with the lentiviruses, these are retroviruses, which mean they can take something that you give them and put it into a cell and permanently change that cell. That is one of the key tools that we've been using over time to change the genetics of cell lines so we can ask specific questions about a particular molecule, a particular protein, a particular gene. Um, going outside the viruses and thinking more about microbes in general, one of the most exciting aspects that has come along is the CRISPR-Cas9 system and the ability to specifically and permanently change the genome in a fast, efficient manner. And those really came from actually a bacterial system that was defending against viruses. And so not only the viruses themselves are excellent tools that we can utilize and leverage to our own advantage, but the defenses that other organisms have developed against these viruses are things we can also exploit and use to further bio biomedical research. And you mentioned in uh, conversations with stem cell that you were interested in uh, getting involved in this review process because of the issues in uh, replication, uh, the replication crisis in, in the biological sciences. Can you talk a little bit about 
you know, what you have seen and uh, what you understand to be that crisis and also um, how that led to you wanting to apply to be a part of this project. Absolutely. Thank you, Kiki. I feel that reproducibility is one of the crux of scientific discovery. It is important for us as scientists to be able to try something once, try something twice, try something three times, try something 50 times, and get the same answer. Now, when you're talking about doing that over time, over distance, over different labs, different protocols, you start to see a lot of variability that's not attributed to the biology of the system, but is really attributed to those differences in protocol and reagents. What I really wanted to know coming to stem cell is how can stem cell contribute to standardizing reagents and protocols across time, across distance, such that if I do an experiment today and I repeat that experiment five years from now in a different lab, I'm gonna see the same result. And that is really what I'm interested in because I think it's a true uh, achievable step that a company can accomplish to really address the reproducibility crisis. A lot of the way that this problem has been framed is that it's a problem in academic science, that it's the wild west of academic of science and everyone is doing their own thing in their own way. And so we can't reproduce anything because everybody does things a little bit differently. But coming in from a tools and reagent product company standpoint, how can they make sure that they are reducing the variability that we are finding as scientists across the globe? And really what I've found here at Stem Cell is a very high rigor of quality control and quality checks. Some of the things that we've seen includes getting raw materials in large batches so that the lots of the raw materials are the same across time as they generate these reagents. Looking at validating those raw materials and validating the products at every step of the process to ensure that the ability of that product to perform remains the same, whether that product was made now or 10 years ago. And they have these particular standards that the product absolutely has to meet. And I've been really impressed by the number of controls and the types of controls that they've introduced to try and reduce that variability. It really comes to what I feel is a value within the company of generating consistent, reliable reagents. All right, Amy, before we move on to Craig, one last question about your own research here, big picture. Viruses, you talked about, you know, they've been doing this for eons, uh, predating a lot of the animals that we study. Uh, in terms of treating these viruses like West Nile or Zika, uh, do you think we're ever going to beat them? It doesn't seem like we've been able to like figure it out. What's the deal there? I do think that we will eventually be able to beat viruses in the sense that we will get to the point where they no longer make us sick or make us die. But will we ever rid ourselves of them? No, absolutely not. I think we'll come to a place of symbiosis where they're able to survive and we're able to survive. We have a lot of instances of viruses coming in and doing things that improve the life of the host. And so I think that that's more the direction we're going and that by forcing these infectious and dangerous viruses to mutate towards a more mutual relationship so that we're not actively trying to get rid of them. 
If you can't beat them, join them. Yep. Right. Resistance is futile. (laughs) Yeah. The the viruses are a part of our life. Just accept it. That's it. Just everyone be happy and in in your symbiosis together. (laughs) Thank you so much, Amy. Um, So we're going to move on now to Craig. Craig, let's start a very similar question. What is your background and how did you get into studying uh, cancers and, and, and what are you working on currently? Well, thanks, Kiki, and uh, thanks, Dalen. Um, so I got into cancers kind of accidentally. And my, my career trajectory, you could call it, oops, I guess I'm working on this now. So I started in immunology, uh, B-cell development, B-cell survival. And I had a pretty straightforward research project that I wanted to do. I was just looking at cell signaling and how it contributes to the ability of a hematopoietic stem cell to differentiate and become a mature, functioning, antibody-producing B cell. And I was just studying this one particular extracellular receptor. And uh, at the time, the question was, what happens when, uh, in the first few minutes that we trigger that cell receptor, what's the cell going to do? And uh, I was doing a lot of flow cytometry experiments at the time, and while I was learning the technique, the, the people who were training me, the technicians, were saying, oh, all that stuff that you're seeing in your flow plots, just ignore that. That's noise. That's debris. We're just going to gate that out and ignore it. And mm-hmm. we were noticing that the material that we were gating out and ignoring changed over time in ways that was different from what the cells were doing. And so there was that one moment question of maybe I should just check to see what's going on down there in the garbage I'm ignoring. And what we found was in the first few minutes that we were stimulating these cells, they started to release a whole bunch of material from the plasma membrane. And this was before the field of extracellular vesicles um, began to hit the mainstream Uh, So at that point, we really had no idea what we were working on and what we were doing. And we had no tools to investigate it. So somebody came up with the great idea of, why don't you just try to get a picture of it and see what's going on here. So we did uh, some high-resolution microscopy, and we got this great image that five minutes after we stimulated our cells the plasma membrane starts pinching off all of these little pieces. And that was the moment there that I realized I'm not actually working on B cells anymore. I'm working on these little bits of B cells that we were ignoring for years. And uh, so my lab didn't have the tools to do that at the time. And um, as part of my program, I went to the Atlantic Cancer Research Institute, because they had developed some tools for working with extracellular vesicles. I went, I learned the techniques, I learned from some of the staff that were there and brought those back to my lab. But at the end of my degree, I really decided that I was still interested, not just from the basic biology standpoint about what these things are, but are there applicable benefits that we should be looking into them? And the mandate at the time, uh, and where I work now, is to use extracellular vesicles as biomarkers, either in therapeutics or in uh, disease diagnostics. And so the research team that I'm a part of is sort of cancer agnostic. We will look at any tumor, any model, any system, and we take 
the extracellular vesicles that they produce and ask, is there something that gives us easier access to information about your disease? Is there something that we can use to design a better treatment? Is there something that we can use to less invasively stage a disease or put you down one treatment path earlier than we could if we had to wait for another biomarker? And so I'm really excited to be part of that team because I feel like we're at the beginning of a, a new research question that hasn't reached maturity yet. So we're really getting a lot of freedom to explore what we can do in this space. So I think this, you're describing an arc that is not um, entirely unique to you, but maybe it's less common, which is like uh, going from something very basic uh, and fundamental, like you know, B cell response and maturation, and then based on this observation, as you described well there, moving into something that's very applied, translational, and focused, um, almost as you would see in a kind of corporate environment, yeah. uh, uh, less academic. Would you describe your current position as like maybe shifting more towards translational focus like you would see in, in private industry? And what's that like? Like what's that, that change? Uh, what have you noticed uh, pros and cons about the, that shift? So I think that's a really interesting question. I would say that my role is shifting out of what I consider the basic biology academic research into the more translational or industrial side of science. And that's actually part of the reason that I wanted to come peer review stem cell. They seem to also be playing in that space of straddling the line between what we consider traditional academic research and a more industrial applied research. So my role is labeled postdoctoral fellow, but in terms of what you would see in an academic department, uh, I have a lot more freedom, I think, to uh, explore the weird and wonderful sides of these projects by saying, Monday I'm working on this tumor subtype and I'm going to try this assay that I don't know anything about. And by Friday, I might hear that another of our team members got great success in a totally different system asking a completely different question, and I get to go move over and see what's going on there. And so a lot of the research that I get to do at the Institute is, um, I'm going to say, untethered to a lot of external conditions. And we really get to see where the science is taking us without preconditions on where we need to go. Right. So you don't, yeah, you don't, you, you can, you can take it wherever you want to take it and see where you can, where it will lead. Um, in terms of the extracellular vesicle space, what are some of the really exciting things that, uh, that you've been discovering recently? And because like you said, this is this kind of new area of research. I sort of feel like extracellular vesicle biology today is where stem cell biology was about 15 years ago. And that's, right now, extracellular vesicles are magic. Whatever question you want to ask, they do that. And <laughs> what we're doing right now is we're trying to tease apart how mechanistically do they function. And so the, the, the whole history of that field, we didn't know what cargo they even carried or if they carried cargo until about 1996. Nobody knew that they had RNA in them until the early 2000s. 
And so the questions that we're looking at right now and that the field are really struggling to address are how does a cell choose what it wants to keep for itself and how does it choose what it wants to put into a vesicle? And when I was defending my PhD thesis, one of the, and that was only a few years ago, one of the questions that came up were, do you actually believe that they're choosing cargo or is it just a passive process and it's a dumping bag of whatever makes it to get out just makes it out? And so the research is really moving in that there's definitely a system because we see not everything that is in the cell makes it into a vesicle. And some things that are really low abundance are exported preferentially. And the microRNA guys are the ones who are getting the really cool results right now where they say the cells seem to hoard all of these particular subtypes, subtypes of microRNA and they export all of the other kinds, or they export this one particular subtype really effectively. Craig, I got a final question. It's not going to be easy, bro. I apologize. <laughs> Hit me. I'm ready. <laughs> but I, I love talking to young people because they have courage, you know? Uh, we talked to a lot of stylish investigators, and they're very careful about what they put on the record. Not you, though, Craig. Not you. <laughs> All right. So I, this is in the stem cell field, which is uh, near and dear to me. There's a lot of things, you know, like you were alluding to. Back then, you could do anything. It's magic. And that, now it's all like, oh, well, we should have known. Or I could have told you that this and that and all the things, all the problems. And now it's a real question. Can we ever really even apply these cells? It's a lot of skepticism. Just give me one of like, I could have told you about exosomes 10 years from now. Like positive or negative, but like the expectations either being too lofty or the things that like we, we should have known that we sh should have been applying these things for. But that, you know, it took some outside the box guy like you. <laughs> exactly do it. Uh, I'm not going to say I'm the outside the box guy, but uh, <laughs> the one thing that we should have known, and honestly, all of biological science has been burned by expectations on we've got the perfect classification system for this. We know exactly what this is when we look at it uh, by surface markers or by protein where we go, yeah, that's definitely what this is. And back in the day when the, the field was really beginning, everything was called exosomes. Everything that came out of a cell was an exosome. And somebody came out and said, uh, wait, no, we're not going to call them all exosomes. The ones that come from the cytoplasm, they're exosomes. And the ones that come from the plasma membrane, we're going to call them something else. And it was shedding vesicles for a while. And then it was ectosomes. And now it's microvesicles. And so we went, okay, fine, we're good. There's two different kinds, but that's it. They're synonymous. And they said, <laughs> exosomes, they've got markers, CD63. That's it. That's the exosome marker. That's the gold standard forever. Nail it down, write it in the books. This is never going to change. And the latest paper that is coming out, I think, uh, sometime this year from International Society of Extracellular Vesicles was... Guys, if you could stop saying that this is an exosome because it's CD63, and if you could stop calling it it's a microvesicle, uh, that'd be great because we don't really know what we're talking about. And we're going to go back to the drawing board on this for a while. Back to the drawing board. Lots of room for some good research in there for sure. Thank you so much, Craig. And now we are going to move on to... Fiona, Fiona, 
It's Hello. your turn to explain to us. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. It's your turn to explain to us who you are, what you do, uh, what is the science that you focus on. Give us the details. So um, I took a circuitous route from Scotland via Massachusetts to York to work on prostate cancer. Um, my original PhD was on a uh, herpes virus, not a hairpiece virus, which, <laughs> but <laughs> a herpes virus, um, which affected uh, cattle in sub-Saharan Africa, and it was passed by the blue gnus or the blue wildebeest. And I will see the herpes virologists have very good conferences and very good conference T-shirts, um, like I don't have herpes, but I'm working on it. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so I moved from there into the, the world of cancer research and my interest relates to the models that we use and how the models, um, the cellular models can impact the results that we get and how we interpret those results. Um, there's a lot of cell lines uh, used in prostate cancer which have been around for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And we can't really expect those cell lines to be representative of current disease. And they can't represent the disease variability and patient variability. So my passion is to work with patient samples and to use cells cultured from those samples um, so that we can address patient variability and also cell heterogeneity. Um, so a lot of the work I do is using the patient cells, disaggregating them and looking at different cell types. I, uh, a collaboration is a key feature of my work because a lot of people have something they want to test on those cells. Um, so we, we collaborate with physicists. We've worked with low temperature plasma to try and blast the cells in a, in a different fashion. Uh, photodynamic therapy. Uh, radiation, the sort of traditional therapies as well as novel therapies. Um, and we've established that there are subpopulations of cells within those uh, patient tissues which are more or less resistant or susceptible to the different treatments. And we establish the different uh, cell consequences, with whether it be apoptosis, autophagy, senescence, uh, depending on the treatment that we give them. But the other key feature is that the patient cells are a lot harder to kill than the cell lines that people typically work with. So we've had companies give us drugs to test, which work really well in the cell lines, but they don't kill the patient cells uh, because there's redundant pathways and there's other mechanisms that the cells have to overcome those treatments. So we're interested in looking at resistance mechanisms um, and possibly subpopulations of cells that might be responsible for tumor recurrence in patients. So yeah, Fiona, I mean, you're a mentor or maybe the head of the lab, Dr. Maitland famously was among the first to identify the prostate cancer stem cell. Is that correct? Um, yes, people from his lab, yep, were involved in that controversial time. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's an interesting idea. I know you've worked on trying to target this uh, in vivo cell by making it, you know, the resistant stem cell more with the HDAC inhibitors to try and make it more um, amenable uh, yeah. to or treatable. Uh, but it, it raises a question, you know, as a man, I'm worried about the prostate, I'm getting old. And uh, a lot of people in the current state of, of 
clinical diagnosis and care talk about, you know, a more, not just with prostate cancer, but with breast cancer and all the monitoring. Is there, what, I, I'm sure what you're talking about is more malignant cancer stem cells, but could you just clarify within the spectrum of prostate issues for my own personal knowledge? <laughs> what, um, what are we talking about here in terms of malignancy? Could you just give me a, a little cheat sheet on that? Well, there, there is a huge problem within prostate cancer in terms of not having a good test. Uh, the PSA test is not... Um, very helpful in many ways because of the over um, the, the positive and negative um, results that are, are the opposite of what they, sh they should be. So um, we need a better test and the results say that 40 men have their prostate out to save one man's life. So there's a huge overdiagnosis of prostate cancer and a huge amount of people having operations and treatment that may not actually need that because we can't tell if what they have is a really bad one or not a bad one. Um, I don't know if you're aware of um, a group in the UK called Medical Detection Dogs and they're actually training dogs to detect cancer in urine and they have a clinical trial at the moment with 3,000 people uh, for bladder and prostate cancer. And the dogs are over 90% accurate. The PSA test is way, way, way below that. So there's a volatile organic compound in the urine that the dogs can smell that they don't know what it is. Um, and they're working with scientists to try and establish if there could be a, a nose, uh, a, an electronic sensor that could be as uh, sensitive as the dog's nose. However, not been found yet. Um, and I think that's kind of out-of-the-box thinking. Some people really think that's cool. Some people think it's crazy. Um, but actually, the, the results will be, uh, the clinical trial results will, will show whether these, it's the way forward. And you don't need a dog in every surgery. You, you can just send the urine to the lab and the dogs can test it. <laughs> um, so the diagnosis and differentiation between an aggressive cancer and one that's just going to sit there is still a huge problem in prostate cancer. And as you mentioned, even uh, beyond that, once you've, uh, when you're dealing with specific patients as opposed to the cell lines that they're testing these treatments on, some patients are going to be more easily treatable than others. And so when you're testing these, uh, these patients' cells, what are some of the challenges in trying to discover the you know, redundant pathways and other, you know, these other systems that the patient cells have in place to fight the treatments? Um, well, there, you obviously have to test multiple patients and you do get that variability and it's trying to tease apart. Um, it's not often as simple as a responder and a non-responder. There can be a range of responses. And we actually have found that um, publishing this can be difficult because if we produce something where the, the difference is not super clear, um, we get reviewers saying that actually the patient variability is a problem. And it's not the, a problem, it is the problem <laughs> that we are trying to address. Um, and so we can't really brush it under the carpet. We can't say, well, it's a bit hard because it's all a bit different. Um, but obviously, uh, other people in the UK and elsewhere have done a lot of work with sequencing uh, prostate tumours, looking at the evolution of the metastatic tumours within the body. 
and this um, has led to various mutations being discovered that could be key driver mutations in prostate cancer. Um, but there's, none, there's no one answer in that. There's obviously another variation. So it comes down to possibly personalised treatment in the future. Combination treatments, I think, are going to have to be used because of the heterogeneity. And prostate cancer is a multifocal disease. So even if the, the biopsy is taking one of the tumours, you might have missed the aggressive small tumour that the MRI didn't pick up. So there's, there's a huge scope for prostate cancer research and um, it's, it, the, the amount of research funding and the amount of interest in it is increasing. All right, well, you clearly are taking this state-of-the-art approach, next-generation next sequencing and the fractionation of the tumour. You're going back old school with the dogs. I don't know what to say <laughs> about that. That's awesome. Um, and there's, I got to just peek into this thing you're doing that seems like it's from the future. Uh, are you really using plasma? You're using like a whole other phase of matter here to treat prostate. <laughs> just to close, can you give us a little insight into how that works and if that is going to be the next big thing for like instead of like uh, radiotherapy, gamma radiation or something that you could do plasma in a patient? Is that, is that how, what we're it's, talking about? It's a little bit Star Trek-like, but um, <laughs> it could become reality, actually. Plasma, um, so for people who don't know what it is, low-temperature plasma, um, the way the physicists describe it to me is if you heat solid, you get liquid. If you heat liquid, you get gas. If you heat gas, you get plasma. So plasma is really um, reactive species and uh, different particles which can be directed and um, generated to basically kill cells. Some plasma has been used for wound healing assays, and there is actually a, a device for um, some men also get a benign prostatic hyperplasia, which is not a cancer, um, but it's just an overgrowth. And they actually are currently using plasma in the clinic to basically get rid of that. <laughs> um, so we are using low temperature plasma in the lab to blast the cells and it does kill the cells. There's reactive oxygen species, reactive nitrogen species. So we think it might kill the cells more effectively than uh, say photodynamic therapy, which relies on the reactive oxygen species. Um, at the moment, the, bit, the translational difficulty is that it's, you need a lot of power. There's an, a lot of electrical power. Um, and if you're talking about putting it into a patient, that is a consideration. Um, however, localized prostate cancer is um, very preferable to the patients. If they have a localized tumor, they can get high-intensity ultrasound, cryotherapy, um, those kinds of things which won't have the side effects of total removal of the prostate. So that's where we would see plasma fitting in. It would need to be directed and focused into a, a single localized tumor. So it's, it's in the pipeline, but uh, so some work to do on that. And that's exciting work. But before uh, we, I guess we're going to get into the group discussion, the large group discussion. Fiona, you had uh, mentioned that you were interested in how stem cell technologies was helping the entire or affecting, influencing the entire scientific community. And so to kind of step from your personal science and more into the, why you came to visit and peer review stem cell and to move us into this group discussion. How do you feel stem cell is uh, really 
doing in, uh, or what are they doing to influence the scientific community? Um, I think stem cell are doing things that they don't necessarily have to do. So they're a successful company that produces good quality products and they could just stop at that. But I think their philosophy and the culture, uh, they do want to reach out to scientists in terms of getting the, the publications out there and the, the latest methods out there, uh, really to move the field forward. Uh, as a scientist, there's lots of uh, hurdles you have to overcome in terms of getting funding, getting reagents that work, trying to get experiments to work to create a story that you can then uh, finally publish. Um, and I think any uh, way that we can make the information overload easier to handle and digest is really helpful to the scientific community. So I think that's one way that stem cell is reaching out. Amy, how do you feel? I mean, you you mentioned we had this uh, this brief discussion a little a few minutes ago about uh, the reproducibility and the the quality control that they have. Do you feel that that quality control is really going to be what also influences uh, the scientific community as a whole? I'm not so sure it's the quality control that's going to influence the scientific community. It's going to be the consistency over time and the ability to communicate in publications that these are the reagents I used, these are the conditions I used, and then for someone else to look at that and say, this is a great idea, I have this other idea that goes with it, I'm going to start with this same experiment to make sure that I have what you have, and having those consistent reagents is what's going to make the difference in the scientific community. So it's really that stem cell and other companies are going to be acting as the scaffolding for the researchers and not so much that they're influencing where the field is going, but they're supporting and making sure that the field is going there in a rigorous, high quality manner. Craig, do you have anything that you want to add about uh, the influence on the scientific community? Yeah, um, I think it's really uh, encouraging what stem cell is trying to do, even bringing us in. You, you have to admit that it's a risk to open yourself up and say, I want you to open every door, I want you to shake every cupboard, I want, I want to know what you see when we bring in. And their motto is scientists helping scientists. So that sounds good on paper. What does that actually look like? And so coming in here, we've spoken to more people than I can remember. We've been in every department. We've been top to bottom. And they've been very welcoming to talk about what they find frustrating, what they find exciting, what they want to do, and the conversations that they want to have. And the important thing for me is that they're trying to engage us as peers, as scientists, rather than as consumers. And even though they want people to buy their products, they want them to buy products because they truly believe that they're good things to have and that they will make science easier or better for the people who have them. So seeing people, uh, I mean, look at the research that any one of us does as scientists. We want people to believe that we do good work. We want people to believe that we ask good questions and that we're doing impactful things that help others. 
I see this now as an extension of the same thing. Stem cell is a bunch of scientists who decided that they would tackle a different question. And that was, how do I put out a better product? How do I let other people ask better questions? And I'm gratified to be able to come in and see that that mentality seems to stretch from the bench to the conversations about what's the best way to market a product to how do I support somebody using it and how do I communicate successful science? So it's been uh, a little bit eye-opening. All right. I mean, I know we're having the, the group hug now and scientists <laughs> helping scientists is, I think, I, I believe it. I have to come out and disclaim I do, you know, as an independent contractor, mind you, I work for stem cells. I do work for them. But I also am a fan uh, and I use the reagents. And all that. And I love their philosophy. But as a skeptic, you know, I got to voice the other side of this. I guarantee you, scientists helping scientists, but I guarantee you a scientist isn't doing the accounting or the PR. All right. Let's be honest. This is a company. It's hugely profitable. Actually, the, a scientist you know, the, is the, doing the PR. Is that true? Oh, that well, is true. I take it back. Well, I hope they're not doing the accounting because I'm, a, I'm terrible. <laughs> <with them. laughs> anyway, I, I just, what I, what I mean to get across here is that there is an element when you become big and you become something that people want and you can provide it and it's all, you know, IP and protected, et cetera. There is an element there that is corporate, right? And that's important, I think. And we need to acknowledge that. But I guess the question is, from your guys' view, well, going there, I would be like, you know, I, I want to see how these guys are going to reconcile the corporate interests with, like, the true science. You know, in the lab, you guys, you'll do an experiment, get it right, and then you'll do it 100 times. And then, you know, you still have to be open to the idea that you may not be right, you know, and you, you may, your conflict there isn't financial, whereas, you know, you know the deal. So how do you think they reconcile it? What have they shown you to show how they can make those two interests, which may seem mutually exclusive, how do they reconcile those two? So I've bought stem cell products as part of my research, uh, although I will admit I haven't bought them in years because I'm not working in that sort of space anymore. Um, and one of them didn't work for me at all. Uh, some of the earlier ones did, and I, I called, I got in touch with support, and so they asked for my data, and they asked for my numbers. They asked for all the files that I had generated using the product, and it wasn't out of a um, message control issue, because they emailed back and they said, have you tried this, have you tried that, uh, and at the end of the day, it didn't work, still. And so they said, you know what? Don't use that product. And so we've been here looking through things, and they've been open about things that don't work and about things um, maybe that, from a corporate side of it, aren't spit-polished. They're willing to show the rough edges on things. And I do think that that speaks to a bit of integrity, where you're willing to say this is the best solution that we've got. Maybe it's not the best solution, period. And, and that's been upfront. The other side of that is, when they do think they have the best solution, they're willing to say it. And they're willing to come back and say, look, I have tried this every way from Sunday. 
And if you can come up with another way to test it that we haven't figured out, tell us, and we're going to try it. And they've asked. <laughs> um, so being able to say when something works for you and when something doesn't, and to stand by both sides of that was important for me to see. Amy, oh, yeah, go ahead, Fiona. Yeah, well, jump right in. They, they have also shown us that um, the profits basically get fed back into the company for R&D and product improvement. So there aren't any investors, there aren't any shareholders. So as, as someone who is funded by charity, that's something that sits well with me because I don't like buying a product with charity money that's then um, going to a shareholder. It doesn't just, it doesn't feel right. So they have to be a successful company and make money and clearly what they're doing is working because people must be buying the products or else the company wouldn't be growing like it is. Um, so I, I think that's a key, key point. And they showed us those numbers. Fiona, what do you think, uh, I mean, uh, sorry, Amy, um, could you weigh in? What do you think either is a, a potential hurdle or stumbling block as stem cell continues to grow at such a vigorous pace? Or what do you think they could do to uh, improve or stay on course with their scientists helping science image as they move forward? I think that their biggest problem and what they're struggling the most with is really connecting with the research user. I think they're good at communicating through their website and communicating at conferences and communicating one-on-one -on -one through the sales representatives, but that doesn't really represent the person using that product. That doesn't represent the grad student, the postdoc, the technician who asked their lab manager, order this product for me. When it comes in the lab, I'm gonna pick it up and I'm gonna use it. And if I have a problem with it, I'm gonna tell my lab manager. And so I don't think that they're really reaching the population that they need to reach to just because those people aren't necessarily the ones with the true purchasing power. And so I think that that's a struggle that they have and they're gonna continue having that issue as they continue to diversify and grow in the way that they are is that they are trying to have a large footprint but they also need to make sure they maintain that connection with the individuals who are using the products. And I think they try to do that but I think that there isn't enough of that going on because if something works perfectly for you, you're not gonna call the company and be like, hey, good job, this worked awesome. Um, <laughs> and so they're not getting that kind of feedback and like, oh, I tweaked it just this one way and it totally works, so we're good. Um, and I think that their ability to connect with the people who are using it successfully is an area that they can get into more and talk about more about, okay, well, it worked well, but could it work better? And that's something they're doing on the R&D side, but they're not really accessing the researchers that are using the products for that. Right, the people in the field. Uh, Fiona, are you using stem cell products? I mean, you're doing a lot of work with, uh, with cells yourself. Um, I've used some of the smaller components, um, but I, they haven't moved into the human prostate sphere as yet, so mm -hmm. I'm waiting for them to develop <laughs> something for that. But since I've been here, there are some products I've seen that I feel like I want to try now that I haven't tried, um, related to spheroid and organoid culture. 
Yeah. Do you do you feel like, um, to Amy's point, that there could be more communication between yourself or the people that you work with in your lab who are physically handling these cells and culturing them and, you know, have specific needs? Um, I think it it is tricky because it, uh, of, I'm in the UK, so obviously they do have a UK sales team. Um, but it's, it's a case of whether our paths have crossed and I, I don't think our paths have crossed at a specific conference. So from my end, it was more relying on the website and trying to decide if any of those products are right for me or possible. So I, I do think basically human connection is key to most of these things. A conversation, um, uh, possibly a phone call, these things can just push you over the edge of being interested to actually trying something. Yeah, Fiona, you uh, mentioned the, um, or Craig, this question for you, I guess, makes more sense. Uh, although Fiona talked about her interest in the new products, and uh, I think that's pretty representative of how stem cells extending their reach into not just, you know, the state of the art with stem cell organoids, all that stuff, but also doing a lot of it in like GMP conditions so that these materials and reagents can be applied for clinical trials and ultimately perhaps for clinical practice, right? And you're a guy who's um, invested uh, along the same lines. You've shifted to a more translational bent. How do you think uh, stem cells figures in? How are they going to be able to, to accommodate maybe the increased stringency, uh, the volume, uh, required for that type of endeavor while also maintaining this, you know, their feet on the ground with the scientists. Do you, do you have any ideas about that? So I asked that question yesterday. It's funny that you bring it up. Um, so stem cell is investing into GMP products. They're building a new GMP, GMP facility, actually. Um, the announcement was the same day that we uh, started our tour here. So we know that they're thinking along those lines and that they're making plans for entering into more of that space. The problem that I see for them is the expansion that that's going to require, the new people on the ground, the more bodies in the lab. And when you're small, it's easy for you to control corporate culture and it's easier for you to control um, quality a lot more simply than it is as you get bigger. And the concern that I have is um, I think that stem cell might be growing faster than they realize themselves mentally. It's almost like a little bit of mental inertia. And um, hoping that things stay the same is not going to be enough. There has to be some sort of corporate push, corporate policy to say these are the values that started the company when we were small, these are the ones that we had at midlife, these are going to be the ones when we're big. And uh, I'm not 100% sure that I've seen all of that. I know they're thinking about it, but they still seem to be thinking like this is off in the future when we get big, and they haven't realized that they are big now. Well, you guys talked to Alan. You, you met him firsthand, and I've always you know, been impressed at what a strong hold he has over the company for the better. Not a chokehold. I just think he's kept it on course, um, on this course, uh, as, at least as far as I know. You guys talked to him 
What do you think about his, you know, mission? We know his intent is to keep it um, really focused on that message, on that ideal. Uh, what was your takeaway? Maybe, uh, Amy, you could tell us how that meeting went. And uh, what, what did he have to say about that? Really, his message on those lines was quite simple. Make high-quality products that researchers want to use to move their research forward. And there's some expansion on that that you can talk about of bringing in other products. If we don't make that product, how can we make it those types of vision, as well as which really drives the GMP market of we know that our customers are going towards that. And so what he told us was that he wants to take those customers and be able to support them in a clinical setting. And so as they push that forward, um, he's still really on that bottom line of quality products that researchers want to use. And I think that he was very focused on that idea while letting the people he's hired really focus on some of these other questions of how are we going to do that? What is that going to look like? What is the corporate culture going to look like within that? And so while I do think that his leadership and his goals of keeping that culture and keeping that small company feel, um, I think that it may get out beyond what he personally is able to have his hands in. And it depends really on that leadership below him that's going to make it happen and going to make stem cell either remain a trusted company that you can go to and rely on or a company that used to be good, but is no longer up to the standard. Yeah, it's really how does that how does it permeate the entire the entire corporation from the top down? Yeah. Um, so can we I'd love to find out your overall peer review kind of executive summary from each of you, your experience, <laughs> your, you know, you just the time, what your feelings over your time there. You've, you've kind of touched on various topics in these answers so far. Maybe start with Fiona, executive summary of your peer review of stem cell. Um, well, I guess it does all start from the top, and that is what has come over. The, the philosophy and the culture comes from Alan. We suggested things to him that the company could do or ways it could go, and he was pretty clear about saying, but that's not what we do. He knows what they do. He knows what they're good at. He has the vision. And what has become clear is that it, it is the people that, are, that make this company. They have the same values, the vision, the strategy, the goals. It's cohesive. Um, there are separate groups, but they all talk to each other. It doesn't feel um, splintered in any way. Uh, and it feels like it's a good model that could be used for other companies. <laughs> I don't know if that would be possible. Um, I, I feel like when I go back to my lab, um, I will feel that this has been a little bit of a bubble um, in terms of the the structure and the, the vision and all of that, because academia is quite a different beast. Um, so that, that's what I'll take away with it. Good. Craig? Um, so, impression in a word, uh, I'm impressed. Do I think that that's indicative of perfection? No. 
Uh, I like what stem cell does. What I would want is for stem cell to do more. And not in terms of give me better quality or give me better support. That's fine. I want stem cell to start finding its voice in trying to push science in particular directions, in to raise the standard of discourse or to facilitate more conversations about the way that science is done. Because we get excited about good questions. Nobody gets, nobody gets into science because of numbers on a page and because of the figure in the manuscript. We get excited about science when you hear the really cool idea and the really interesting work that's going on in somebody's lab or that result you never expected you were going to see. Stem cell sees all of it because they support so many different research teams. They know the cool science that's going on and they have a corporate culture that's designed to support it. So what I want to see from them is not more of a push for quality, consistency, because they have that. What I want to see is start pushing more of the conversation about what's cool, what's exciting, why we should get involved in science. And then we can talk about how stem cell can support that. And Amy? When I came into this, I was really focused on the idea of reproducibility. And to my mind and a little bit more about my background, I worked in biotech research and development companies prior to going to grad school. Coming into a company and looking at their research and development, looking at their quality controls, their SOPs, standard operating procedures, I'm satisfied that they are doing the rigor on the science side. Coming in and looking at it from a scientist helping scientist aspect, I do think that they are trying to be the best support system that they can. And to do that, they've brought in scientists and really let them grow and flourish. Something that I found very striking about stem cell was the mobility of the people within the company. Many people come in through the R&D department and then move on to marketing or sales or product support and technical support. Those, those people who have moved into those roles are bench, originally bench scientists. They have been there and worked their way through a honors thesis for a bachelor's degree, a master's thesis, a PhD thesis. They know what the troubles are and they stay and they are retained by stem cell and are moved around the company to fill in these other roles because they believe in what stem cell is doing and how they're doing it. If there wasn't the integrity of the scientists and the integrity of scientists overall throughout the company, I don't think that they would have the kind of employee retention that they see, which is very high. Um, so coming at it from this idea of reproducibility and can I trust stem cell with my science? I think that the answer is yes, I can trust them. Now, does that mean I will always be able to trust them? I don't know. We'll see where they go. But at this moment, I would feel confident saying this reagent is something that I would use here and I would recommend it to my colleague in France so that we can get the same result. And so overall, I think for reproducibility, I think stem cell is doing the right thing and moving in the right direction. 
All right, there you have it. Our three independent peer reviewers. We're going to do some now here because, I don't know, maybe we're not going to do it. Here's an idea. <laughs> Let's think about it. You know, peer review, at the end of the day, you get the answer, right? Uh, and unfortunately, it's usually anonymous. Um, and you guys are all over the map now. Everybody knows your name. So how about if we, we can get a piece of paper there? You can write in, your, in the piece of paper while, you know, while we're talking here. I just go on and on. You can have plenty of time. Uh, you can write, reject, accept with major revisions, accept with minor revisions, or accept. And we can talk about that answer at the end of the show. But first, Kiki, don't we have something else to talk about? Absolutely. So we have uh, what we like to do with our podcast now. We have a segment. It's called the, the Last Question also, where we like to ask questions that have more of a broader reach. And this has been about you and your science, your experience at stem cells so far. But now let's talk about various ways that your experiences can help out other researchers, young investigators specifically. Um, so we, ha we have three questions that we like to ask. And there are three of you. So each of you is going to get a different question. So can let's we, can start we trade with... questions. <laughs> yeah, maybe you can trade <laughs> questions. Talk amongst yourselves and figure out who wants to answer which question. No, um, the questions are: If uh, what advice do you have for young scientists, for scientists coming into the the cell stem cell field? Um, what advice do you have for them as they enter this career? Another question Who wants to answer that one? Amy's I'm sorry, I'm, I'm hitting my up. buzzer. I'm hitting <laughs> ding, 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 ding. I want to answer that question. She's making right. threatening faces at the rest of us if we jump in. Do you want me to go ahead and answer it now, or do you want to yeah. tell us the other two? Amy got it. Amy has the quick hands. So my advice for young scientists is twofold. Number one, be curious. There is always something that you don't know everything about. And moving forward towards that is what science is all about. The second part of that is persistence. Being a scientist isn't about being the smartest person in the room. It's not about knowing the most. It's not about having all the facts in your head and ready to spill them out. It's about coming in every day and asking your questions. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But you come back the next day and you ask again, either the same question in a different way or a new question. And so for me, young scientists, be curious and be persistent. That's great advice. I need to tell that to my seven-year-old. We're trying to work on science experiments recently. And I'm like, so we're going to culture bacteria. We're going to compare this, you know, this phone. Again. He goes, I already know how it's going to turn out. And I'm like, what? <laughs> You're seven. He's like, it's going to be covered in bacteria, mom. <laughs> I'm like, well, you're right. Okay, but let's ask questions. Come on. <laughs> he knows everything and he's seven. I got to get that curiosity into him. Um, any, did anyone else want to jump in on answering that question? Or we can move uh, on to the next one if you don't want to. They found his paper. Sorry, they're handing it to us. <laughs> it's a real production here. It's a real production now. Yeah, if for I those would... of you listening to this in, as, a, as an audio podcast, a producer came around, 
handed them all paper and pens per Dalen's request. And so now they have their paper in front of them to write their, their answers, except with major revisions, minor revisions, no holds barred, reject. <laughs> Actually, just as a point of clarity, two people got markers and I got a pink highlighter. That's, uh, <laughs> That's it's a scramble well, here. Well, I guess yeah. there goes the anonymous element of it. <laughs> <laughs> yep, my face on camera wasn't enough to do it. Well, let's uh, go to the second question. This is going to be a let's surprise. Let's do the second question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. D Dalen, do you want to ask the second question? I'm coming at you with, what would you have done if you had not gone into research science? Craig, Fiona, Craig, Fiona. Fiona, it's you. Um, okay, so I came to Canada when I was in my teens. And since the Canadians were so friendly, my plan was to become a physiotherapist and move to Canada because they wanted physiotherapists at the time. <laughs> um, however, uh, at the moment, I think uh, my other passion is related to bushcraft, survival skills, wilderness, that sort of thing. So I'd love to teach that to primary school children. So I, that's survivor. what I'd be doing. survivor. Wow. <laughs> amazing. Unexpected. Very cool. And in the U in the UK, everything's monoculture, isn't it? They've gotten rid of all the the old the old forests, and it's all cultured now. So you know what to expect out there in the wild. <laughs> well, we we still have a few <laughs> wild places up in Scotland. That's the best place. <laughs> Good to know. Scotland is wild. All right. The last... You knew that already. <laughs> All right, our last question is what was in 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 your in your career so far? What would you say has been your biggest science fumble? And how did you recover from it? <laughs> 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 biggest science fumble. I'm so glad I went first. Oh yeah. You got the easy question. Oh, I got to think about that one. Uh, You've never made a mistake, Craig. We all know that. But maybe a minor mishap. Well, well, maybe? I'm trying to make up a mistake now that sounds believable, right? When you're this good. Uh, <laughs> I spent all day making a DNA prep, and I had to carry it up the stairs in glass test tubes. And then I thought I'd check what the time was. <laughs> so I poured my prep onto the stairs. <laughs> oh, bad. It was a long day. Mine was a technical one, I think. Uh, I don't know if it was the biggest. It was certainly the costliest. Uh, we had a new facility open up at our university that had a brand new, I mean, I took the plastic off confocal microscope. I was the first user. And I go in. The, uh, the setup rep is still there. And he tells me all about how the, uh, the computer handles moving the objective stages don't worry about any of it. And then there's a hand control on the, uh, the microscope itself if you want to just keep looking down at your slide and move your objective lens. And so the system was set up. It was going to lower the lenses, rotate the one to the magnification I want, and lift them back into place. And if you did that from the computer, it was perfect. Everything worked <laughs> according to plan. I was looking down through the microscope. I was on low power, and I was thinking, now I'm going to get in. This is going to be the money shot. So I click the one that's on the microscope itself, and for whatever reason, the objectives don't lower, 
the thing just rotates right in place, and I sheared the top of the uh, the objective lens right off the microscope. Oh. And I'm sitting there, and I went, oh, that didn't happen, did it? That There's no way that that's going to be the thing that kills me, because I can't admit to this now. I'm in fugue state. I'm out. And I, I look at the rep, and I say, I think I just destroyed that lens. And he said, no, you can't. I was like, uh, I think you might want to look at the lens. So oh. he never did. He kept, he just looked at me and he said, no, that, you can't do that. So don't worry about it. It must have been something else. And it was a week later, I got an email from the manager of the facility that says, do you happen to know what happened to the low power objective lens? Oh, man. I was never there. <laughs> it was another guy. That was probably 20, what do you say, $20,000? I'm thinking, no that's deal. my estimate. <laughs> was wow. Well, that was a science fumble, but hey, you got away with it pretty much. So. Well, they Cheers. emailed back oh, and they now. said, must have been a software issue. We're just going to replace the lens. Yes. <laughs> I was going to go right. with the Well, time there I... we go. Last question done. Kiki, what else do Unless... we have? Unless Amy wanted to get in there on her biggest science fumble. I do. I feel uh, like since they both contributed one. Um, my biggest science fumble is I was working with a group of high school interns. We were prepping them for their final presentation. And I couldn't get in the conference room on my floor, so I was on the floor above. And we're finished up. We're getting ready to come down the stairs. I'm talking with them, and I miss the first step and fall down the entire flight of stairs in uh. front of my high school interns. Uh, <laughs> five stitches later, um, and after the emergency room visit, my interns are like, do we need to do something else for you? <laughs> so that... That is my biggest science fumble, literally fumbling down the stairs. Well, I'm sure you recovered some measure of respect from that at the end of the summer. <laughs> All right, Dalen. So they have answered their questions, written them on the pieces of paper. How do you want to approach this now? We need an independent uh, uh, accountant. Get one of those PhD accountants from stem cell over here to look at the answers, will you? And to read the answers out. We wow, got like yes. four people looking nervous, looking around the room now. <laughs> Is it going to be me? Do I have to do this on camera? Maybe we can hold them okay. up and have you read them aloud. Mix them up. Mix them up first. Mix them up. I, I'm the I pink the one. Pink. What am I going <laughs> to do? the pink highlighter. Yeah. We will not declare the pink highlighter, but Kiki, you and I will know. <laughs> We will know, but we won't say it. This is audio only, right? We'll know, and we will judge. And we will report directly to Stem Cell, and they will probably put out a hit on you, Craig. <laughs> you got uh, the right answer. Let's see. Starting from the... You're right. Except with minor revisions. Is that minor? You wrote so little, whoever yep. that was. <laughs> to the middle. To Kiki, the middle? you get this one. Except with minor revisions. With minor revisions. That's what that is says. Except with in? minor revisions. I, my view is limited here, so that's why I'm not reading them out loud. <laughs> Craig just jumped in with like, okay, Kiki. And Craig's like, I got this. <laughs> so, I'm like, I can't read it. We're going to call him Kiki from now on. I was on. really concerned someone else was going to get to talk, and I wasn't. Oh, wait. I swear that I, it's not that I can't make it out because it's not black. I swear that's not one. <laughs> Will someone just read it for me? Yeah. 
It's acceptable. Well, not that one. We got that no, one. No, they don't trust the integrity. You got to put <laughs> okay. that one down. Except we got three accepts except. with minor revisions. We got minor revisions, people. In in the lab, people are doing a, a, a jig right now. Except with minor revisions, you open up the champagne, right? Yep. Yep. This is basically accepted. So on that note... We want to, do we want to talk? We, we've talked a little bit about these minor revisions, and uh, I think so far we've basically got there needs to be a little bit, there needs to be more of that human connection one-on-one with the people who are not just the purchasers, but the, the users of this product. Also, uh, to Craig's point, getting us out, uh, getting stem cell uh, to promote Kind of the 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 up and coming science, working more on those things. I'm I'm and I'm I'm thinking they're doing a really good job recently uh, with the um, organoids and that uh, area of research, which is very up and coming in the in the stem cell field. Um, am I missing anything else for revisions? Can I ask you a question? Well, let's do it. Sure. All right. So. <laughs> We're, we're all scientists sitting at the table. Actually, we're all bench scientists sitting here at the mm-hmm. table. What, what would you want to hear from us in terms of how do we sound credible? How do we actually say that we think things are going well here? Because scientists are skeptics, right? I don't believe it just because I heard it. So what's the evidence that backs it up for you? Well, I got to say, I heard it from you guys because I thought you gave an honest appraisal and it wasn't a lot of sunshine. I think you talked about the challenges moving forward, which I would echo those concerns. Anytime you have uh, two kind of, in my view, fundamentally opposed interests like mankind and bottom line, uh, I think that you can, it's difficult to reconcile as I asked you before, but I think you, you nailed it, is that they're doing their best. It may not work out. It may not work out. At the current state, they're doing a good job. If I would recommend something to somebody else as a scientist, I know that that's a stamp of approval. Bench scientists, having something work is gold. You know, assay is king, as they say. Hmm. It's everything. So having assay that works is really all that matters. My one thing that I want to ask, but I don't want to sound so cold-hearted because it's a big hug fest, but ask, be, be cold, come on. I would say, to the people who say, you know, how can you help mankind and help scientists and also, you know, not make money, uh, I, I don't care about the fact that if you need to make money, good, make money. If you're making money, giving me something that I can use, great. If your primary interest is money, I don't care. My primary interest is getting the job done, and I think we're mutually aligned. And I think the problem comes as you guys were alluding to, is when you stop looking in and making sure your assay is working or stop paying attention and caring about how you could make your assay better. And that only happens, I think, when you lose sight of the, you know, the assay itself and you start thinking about how you can reach more people or if you can you know, keep the patent going longer. I think that what, what you guys have talked about uh, in your little view there, your visit, um, is that they're working on a lot of new stuff. They're creating new product, and their primary interest is maintaining the standard of excellence that they've established with their older products. That's all I care about. If it, if it doesn't work out like that, I'll be the first one to jump ship. 
And I, I think with what scientists want to hear from you, the, what we know is that stem cell put a call out. And like I said, at the beginning of this whole conversation, over 300 applicants applied, right? We had over 300 people and they were whittled down to you three. So you are a represent representation of the interested, the interested population that wanted to come and peer review. And so you're a random sample, you know, chosen because of your application, but you are taken from that overall population. And so it's, it, this is part of the scientific process. Um, and I think there's always going to be skepticism. And I think that is always something that should be taken into account by stem cell, um, by yourselves as you're sitting there and, and the people who are listening to this right now, you know, as Dalen keeps calling this hug fest, you know, (laughs) we are saying a lot of positive things, but it's also the critical aspects that are very important so that it's not just a bunch of patting each other on the back and saying, good job, good job, good job. But Hey, you are doing a good job, but these are the things, these are what we're seeing you can improve on. And now since you have you're coming back with these criticisms and these comments, if stem cell takes that the next step and actually starts iterating on that, it's just going to move things even further forward in a positive manner. So I think I, I from my perspective, I mean, I'm just the podcast host here, right? You know, <laughs> but from my perspective, I think uh, what you have been saying is, I hope what the audience wants to hear. I hope that they do this again with a new group of peer reviewers, maybe next year, maybe the year after that, something like that. And that the new group who comes in, when they get the walkthrough and tour, they see the things that we've pointed out have been iterated on and they've been improved on. And they come with a whole new set of things that they want to be critical about or to point out. And uh, right, that's how the rest of science works. That's what I'd like to see with this as well. I agree with that sentiment. I don't want to see this program be a one of where the three of us came in and we are the only ones that ever walked through here as non-STEM cell employees. I want to see them, again, bring back other people with other questions and put other eyes on this. The other thing that I would say that STEM cell needs to continue doing to maintain what they have is continue to bring in new scientists and not just keep the same old voices over and over and over again as times change, as science changes. The the world that we're in research moves too quickly to only listen to the same set of voices over time. And so I think they need to continue bringing in fresh perspectives and whether that's in the form of outside peer reviewers or bringing in new people as they continue to grow, I think that's critical for them to be able to maintain the excellence, the innovation, and the quality that they have and not let themselves slip. Final comment, Fiona? Um, When I go back to the lab, I'll be like lots of scientists out there where I'll have to deal with many different companies, many different products. Stem cell will be one of those. There will also be the funding pressures and the publication pressures and all of those things. But what I've had from here is an appreciation of the amount of work that goes into a company to produce something and the amount of scope within the company 
and it gives me ideas of how I can hold other companies act, um, to account to the accountability of maybe their practices, their quality control, because not everything I buy can be from stem cell. And I don't necessarily know what I'm buying from certain companies, but I've had ideas of questions I can ask and ways I can uh, make the research better by looking at the reagents I, I use and doing a check on those quality and not taking certain things for granted. What I'm hearing, Kiki, is satisfaction. High standard at stem cell, clearly. They've set a high standard for other companies to follow. And you and I have always talked about how impressive not only their, you know, governing ideology is, but also how they deliver on it. So a great thing they did here, isn't it? I think it is very good. And I, I, I second Amy's motion and Craig's motion to keep this program going, that this should not be the, the first time and that um, to allow more such peer reviewed and iteration and improvement will only benefit stem cell and the scientists who use the products as well. So on that note, I think this has been an amazing conversation. I think we've covered a lot of ground and I just want to say thank you to all three of you for being a part of this and for uh, being open and critical and honest. Um, and additionally, I hope you have a wonderful bike ride this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for having us. I think that's where the hit takes place now that you mentioned it. <laughs> if we've been any good, they might buy us an ice cream. <laughs> 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 That's right. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.